Good morning. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. We want to dismiss our children for Children's Church. They'll be going to learn more about what it means to uh, enter in with us, to participate with us, to be uh, part of what we do as a church, uh, particularly here as we gather and worship. Um, we uh, will be very shortly returning to a move through a book in the Bible. We're going to study the book of James throughout the fall and through the winter. Um, but before we, do that, before we do that, we're taking uh, three weeks at the beginning of this semester to think through some of the things that are really important to our church, some of our core values. Last week, we talked about the way in which God reveals himself to us through the word and through the sacraments, that he shows up in our worship service as we listen and as we receive uh, particularly communion was a, a reference last week as we looked at a text that talked about those things. As a church, we're committed to uh, the authority of God's word and how it reveals to us primarily Jesus and shows us what it means to receive grace from him. Now these things were so important and so central that in some ways we, we might almost imagine that having said that, we would close the book and be done. What else can be said? Well, the Bible says more. It says not only do we need to receive from God, can we uh, receive his revelation as we come together and as we study the Bible on our own, but that we are called to respond to it. The passage today shows us three ways in which Christians respond one is uh, prayer, and, or perhaps prayer and worship. Another is the process of wrestling with God's revelation to think theologically. Uh, but third, and the one that we'll emphasize, is the way in which God calls his people to live together and relationships together. One of our core values says that we seek to be a church that is a family of people growing together. And that is, not only do we respond uh, vertically to God, receiving from Him, hearing His Word, coming to Him in worship, but that we live together as brothers and sisters who are growing in faith. It's central to the message of the Bible, and it's something that we want to remind ourselves of as a church. And so uh, today we'll focus particularly on that aspect of this passage. I'm going to read to you uh, from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Um, as we hear of this reminder that we not neglect to meet together, but instead seek to stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. I think it is common to the human condition that we often take for granted some of the greatest things that we have access to. I first experienced this a number of years ago. We were staying at a beach house at the ocean and we met our, the landlord who was taking charge of the beach house. He lived in the neighborhood and had several houses to be a, a landlord over, 
I remember talking with him. He had known, actually knew my uncle. There was a family connection. And I remember thinking, if I lived at the beach, I would be at the beach every day. And he told us he hadn't been at the beach in three years. I couldn't believe it. When I lived in Boston, I found that many of my friends, my local Bostonian friends, had never been to the Boston Harbor Islands. In my view, it was the best thing about Boston, a remote island you'd get to on a a ferry shuttle, and you could see the city before you on this remote island just, you know, half a mile or so off the edge of the city. But even as Pittsburghers, if we were honest, we would admit there are great things in our city that people who live here often take advantage of. Uh, I know there are many people who make uh, trips to Pittsburgh, sometimes for business, occasionally for pleasure. Some of them come to see the sports sites and memorabilia. They will gather in the Steelers' training facility to behold the trophies of our Steelers uh, football team. And some of them will be moved to tears as they make their pilgrimage there. Now, I know this from friends who've worked there. They've told me, what's up with you Pittsburgh fans? You're crying at these trophies that are in front of you. I've actually never been there. I might cry if I did go, but I haven't gone there. I take it for granted. Or, or many of the people that come to our city, will, will, I mentioned this last week, will take a trip up to the top of Mount Washington especially if it's a light-up night or a game night where the city lights are on and everything lays out before you, the mountains and the bridges and the rivers and the skyline. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Have you been there? Do you go often? I mean, I bet if you came here as a visitor, you would probably think, I would come up to this view every week if I lived in this city. But the people that live here often take it for granted. These incredible privileges of great things we get to do that we are either too busy or too distracted or we just assume it's always going to be there, I'll do it another time. We take it for granted. The passage we're looking at today offers three incredible responses Christians get to have as we respond to God's gracious work in the gospel. Uh, We'll look at them in just a second, but I'll, I'll summarize them and say it's a prayer and worship. Uh, our call to think after God the thoughts he's given us to, to us in Revelation. But third, and what we'll focus on today, is the privilege we have to gather as God's people and to be used for God's purposes in the world and in the lives of other people. But I, I've found in my own life and in, in the lives of people in our congregation that often we have the same responses to these great privileges. Though we know they are there and we sort of assent to them theoretically, we find that for large sections of our life, we kind of take them for granted. Either we're too busy and we just assume they'll always be there, or we perhaps think that other things are more important. What we're going to do is we'll look at the passage today. I want to do an overview of the passage to show you how the gospel calls for response. And what great privileges are open for us. But then we're going to zero in on this one particular verse, uh, the second half of 24 and through 25, this call to be people that meet together and stir one another up. We'll talk about what that means and how we think about it. But third and finally, we'll just try to get really practical. How do we take this teaching 
and try to live differently as people who don't take for granted an incredible privilege. So first and foremost, we'll look at the passage as a whole and see this connection between gospel to response. Uh, the, the, the passage has a very clear structure to it. There are two things that we are told are, are, are conditions. They are summaries of the first part of, uh, of uh, everything in Hebrews up until this part. And we're told, because of this, therefore, we should do three things. So these two conditions begin with the word, since we have. So there are two things, these summaries of all that's gone before us. And because of that, therefore, we are called to do three things. Let us, let us, let us. That's, that's the structure. It's pretty clear. Um, uh, first of all, uh, as we look at the structure, we see these two conditions. Again, summaries of what's been taught in Hebrews up until this point. These are things that are true about Jesus and his ministry. And first of all, we see that since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he, has, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since this is true, therefore, we will do three things. What's being summarized here has been, again, a teaching through, uh, of great emphasis through chapters one, and the first, uh, 1 through 10. And that is, Jesus gave his life that we could be forgiven. He died in the place of sinners like you and I, who are guilty before God. We have rebelled against God. Our sin needs to be covered over and it needs to be paid for. The barrier that, between, that is between us and God has been removed. The image that's used here and the language, and this has been typical of Hebrews as a whole, or as a book, is language that's drawn from the experience of the temple that had been given to the people of God, to Israel. The temple was a teaching tool that reminded people about God's holiness and God's closeness. There was a sense that at the heart of the temple, God was really present with his people. And to go to the temple or to go to Mount Zion was to draw near to God in a very literal and geographic way. However, at the same time, the temple reminded us not only of God's presence, but also of his holiness and our need for forgiveness. The center of the temple was not only the presence of God, but also the practice of sacrifice. Animals were killed, blood was shed, and because of the animal's sacrifice, people could draw near. It was very clear on the teaching tools that the, the death of the animal was in the place of the people. This was in, elaborated in many of the rituals. They would, one of the priests would put his hands on the sacrifice and it would be taken away. And it said the sin of the people was put on the sacrifice. Now it was an incredible access, but it was limited access. At the very heart of the temple, the holy of holies where the presence of God would dwell was a place that only once per year one priest, the high priest, could go and only after elaborate cleansing rituals. And so there was a reminder of God's presence and a picture of his holiness, but the access was incomplete. Well, the book of Hebrews is argued throughout that what we have now is a greater access into the presence of God. This is really the story of the Bible. Jesus came and he fulfilled that, was, that which was foreshadowed. He was the one time for all sacrifice that everything pointed to. And because that sacrifice had occurred, the, te- the, the curtain that separated the holy place was removed. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that at, at the crucifixion, the curtain was ter- torn in two. 
And so what is being argued here in Hebrews is that because of Jesus, we now have access, unprecedented access into the presence of God. Now again, that is an amazing thing if you think of the terms of what is being said, but there's more. Verse 21, there's a second ground of our confidence. It says this, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he was raised from the dead. He was righteous, and the Spirit of God dwelled upon him, and he was raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God, and he has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. What is more, the author of Hebrews reminds us that he is acting now as our great high priest and our intercessor. He is active now, interceding for his people, praying for them, bringing our prayers as it were before God. Hebrews 4 picks this up early on. It says, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, therefore we have confidence to come. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses, verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for him. So not only did Jesus do something definitive in the past, he's still acting now as our great high priest. And that, friends, is a summary of Hebrews 1 through 10. Therefore, that, that's, where, that's where the argument goes. Because God did these things, we now have a response. Because of this amazing work of Jesus, therefore, we are called to do something. And the passage lists three things that we are called to do. It's probably not an exhaustive summary of the Christian life, but it's a pretty broad, expansive view of ways in which God's people respond. Well, the three of them, we'll look at them quickly. First of all, let us draw near. That's what the passage says. Let us draw near in full confidence, knowing that we've been cleansed in Christ. Now, this could mean worship. I think we draw near in worship. But in Hebrews 4, it seems the particular emphasis is on prayer. We draw near to God in prayer and get grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Just pause and think about what's being said here. The God who made the universe and who upholds it by the word of his power can be asked things in prayer and he promises to answer. He will give you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Isn't that amazing? Do we take advantage of that or do we take it for granted? It takes some effort to pray, some intentionality. We have to set the time apart and often our minds are distracted. I think if we're honest, we could say a lot of the times we feel functionally as if we have more important stuff to do. We take it for granted, don't we? It's a challenge of the passage, challenge that's common to the human condition, and I think it's why the author of Hebrews urges them, look upon the work of God and see the privileges he has and take full advantage of them. So as a church, we are committed to trying to pray together in our worship service, in our small group meetings, and in our uh, time of church prayer each week at nine o'clock at the church office. We, we seek to be more intentional in prayer. We see another thing, however, another response. It says we should hold fast to our confession of hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. In the Bible, the word uh, confession can mean a couple of different things. It means that fundamentally that we agree with God. First of all, we could confess our sin. We do that in our worship service. 
God already knows that we are sinners. He knows everything about us. He sees us more clearly than we could see ourselves. But when we confess sin, we're agreeing with God about something he already knows and has already said. However, Christians also can confess their faith. That is, we agree with God about the things he said about himself. He's revealed his character in the gospel that brings hope. And so what, the, what really is being talked about here is not our confession of sin, but it says our confession of hope. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. What, what this is describing is the importance for these uh, Hebrew people to hold fast to the, what they said they believed when they became Christians. And by holding fast, they would have to not only hold on to the beginnings, but they would have to dig deeper and learn more. It describes an active process of thinking about what God has revealed and wrestling with theology so that we can hold fast to our faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And yet at the same time, if we're honest, I think we could say we easily take this for granted, don't we? God has revealed himself to us. The God who made the world can be known. And down through the centuries, faithful Christians and the power of the Spirit have wrestled with that teaching and tried to apply that to their lives. We have the benefit of all of that. Do we take it for granted? Do we sometimes perhaps act act functionally as if we know it on our own? We have nothing to learn. Or do we just maybe assume that opportunities will always be there? Just do a quick plug for many of the programs in our church, our Sunday school program, our small groups, our Agora Forum, and other specialty groups. We have amazing opportunities to grow and learn in our confession of faith and our confession of hope. And if we're honest, right, isn't it easy to take them for granted? Well, all of these are sermons in and of themselves. I'm just looking at them in the passage and and putting it before you. Where I want to focus is this third and final part. It says, let us stir one another up to love and good works. And here in this passage, we actually hear the strongest uh, sort of warning that we might take it for granted. Not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing. Even in this encouragement to take advantage of this incredible opportunity, it's as if the author of Hebrews has to pause and sort of say to the side, listen, I know it's easy to take this one for granted. Don't neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, don't take it for granted. You don't have forever to do this. There is a day drawing near where God will act definitively in the world to bring restoration of all things, and that is meant to be an encouragement that we draw near. Well, this is the summary. Because Jesus died, because he's our high priest, therefore we respond in prayer and worship, in holding fast to our confession and drawing together. Because we're speaking about core values, though, I wanted to make sure we had time to dig in on this final part, though, and and really explore what's meant by stirring one another up to love and good works. How do we do that? Second point in the sermon, how do we stir one another up to love and good works? Uh, Sometimes we ask the question, how, how would my good works relate to a gospel of grace where Jesus does it for you? And many of the places in the Bible show this connection. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the more famous connections in this regard. In that, Paul 
goes out of his way to remind Christians that they are saved by faith, by grace, not works, no one can boast. And for several verses, Paul piles it on, reminding them, you couldn't earn it. You were dead in sins and trespasses. Jesus came and saved you when you weren't looking for it. And then, after nine verses of doing that, verse 10, Paul says, and not only did God save you, but he recreated you in Jesus to do good works that he made for you before the world began. That's pretty powerful to think about. Paul would say, on one hand, nothing you do could earn favor from God. You can't climb up to heaven. You can't merit salvation. But God's salvation is so deep and so expansive that not only does he bring you into God's family, bring you into new relationship, but he gives you meaningful things to do. God doesn't say, I've saved you. Sit around and wait till I come back. But rather, he says, I am empowering you and preparing things for you to do that matter. It's, it's actually a higher view. It's an expansion of salvation. Jesus is saving to the uttermost because he empowers us to do meaningful things. Next week, as we think about uh, loving our, our city and serving the city that God has called us to, we'll be thinking some about good works. But what this passage does is it takes it even a level higher. It says not only are you saved by grace through faith, in relationship with God, by God's power. And not only do you have good things to do, but God plans to use you to help other people do good things. You have the incredible privilege to stir others up to love and good works. That's what's being taught here. That that God is intended for you not only to do things that matter, but to be used in the lives of other people to do things that matter for all eternity through the power of the spirit walking in that which is God prepared for us to do is that like blow your mind or what do you take it for granted perhaps do you you perhaps find that this incredible privilege of meeting together of stirring one another up of encouraging one another to good works is something that you take for granted You see, it's not just the natural sights of a community that we forget to take advantage of, but it's also people. Let me tell you a quick story, and then we'll try to apply this uh, very practically. Uh, It's a story about me uh, and uh, things I used to think about relationships. I was processing this with my wife just this morning. When I was a young person, an older boy, entering into the adolescent years, I had a lot of things on my mind, as you can often imagine. It's a difficult time. Your hormones are raging and your social pressures are changing and everything's different. But as I look back at myself at that time of my life, if you had really, really gotten inside of my head, if you'd given me a truth serum to say what I really thought, I probably would have told you what I wanted more than anything in the whole world was to be happily married in a loving relationship. My parents had a good marriage. I saw good marriages around me. uh, And I really thought of that as an important thing. The reason I remember it is that there were huge barriers to me realizing that potential. One of them was talking to girls. That seemed like an insurmountable obstacle to me. But I I can very clearly remember this sort of, this vague hope that entered the darkness of my adolescent landscape in which I thought, I bet someday, 
maybe it's possible I could be married in, in, a, in a loving relationship. Now, fast forward 30 years, right? I'm in my, my mid-40s, and uh, I'm married far better than anyone thought was possible, <laughs> including adolescent me. And, uh, you know, I'm married, I have kids, uh, we enjoy being together, and yet sometimes the voice of adolescent me sounds in my head, and he says, Matt, you are living the dream, and you are taking it for granted. All of those things you dreamed about, you know, holding hands in the park and staring lovingly into each other's eyes as you have a romantic dinner, you thought that would happen every day when you got married. It has been like six months since you went on a date. Come on, grown up in mid-40s me, get it together, you're missing it all. And usually in moments like that, I start acting strangely, and Chrissy says, what's going on, what are you doing? I'm trying to live the dream. <laughs> uh, two points for my silly story and self-confession. First of all, we take not only things for granted, we take people for granted. But secondly, and teenage me was right in some ways. I'm taking things for granted. But teenage me had a pretty narrow, limited view of what a real relationship was. That's the truth. I thought mostly in terms of a relationship that would make me feel happy and accepted and and warm and comfortable, and we associate those feelings with uh, a nice relationship. But what you discover on the other side of marriage is marriage is much more than that, that God actually intends something more. And, And what the passage is reminding us today is that for all of God's people in all of our relationships, He intends something more than merely a warm feeling of being together. And if all we had in our relationships was just a warm feeling of being together, even if we took advantage of it, we would be falling short. You see, in marriage and in other relationships, in our Christian relationships, in our church, God calls us not just to be together, but to work together. Some of us who uh, experience ministry together see this all the time, the incredible fellowship that comes as we partner in doing something together, doing the good works that God has prepared for us together. I don't know about you, I had a blast at the building yesterday. We were there for several hours tearing down the ceiling and I went home and I thought, why am I so happy? And it wasn't just because we were tearing out the ceiling, is that I was tearing out the ceiling with Ted Adair. And we, we were both covered in soot. That was beautiful. <laughs> we're not only living together, we're working together. But again, take it up a notch. This is the Hebrews 10.25 level. We not only can do work together, we can inspire one another and be used by one another to stir others up to love and good works. Do you see the beauty of that? It's more than we would have guessed and imagined. It's relationship at a higher level than adolescent me could have ever pictured, really. How do we do it? Let's get real practical in just a few closing moments. Three things we see as we look at it, just really practical. First of all, it's through encouragement. Now, we can imagine getting people to do things a lot of ways, and there are really easy manipulations, guilt, and pride shame, pressure, lots of ways to get people to do things, but the passage tells us that the context in, what, in which this happens is encouraging one another. 
reminding one another with our words that God is who he said he is and that he has an amazing calling in our life. Helping each other to see that, yes, we can do it. Even practically helping each other to do things that are important, that matter. The relationships that we have are meant to stir each other up. I experienced this vividly just recently. I was hanging out in an evening with my friend Ken. He's a a professor and a former pastor. We were uh, smoking cigars and talking about life. That's what Presbyterian pastors do when they get together. The other thing they do is they start preaching at each other. (laughs) Ken is a former preacher and he launched into a sermon about God's people as a pilgrim people being sustained in the wilderness. And as he went, my heart soared. He apologized afterwards. We do that too. We, we said, oh shoot, I preached too much. And I said, no, I see the, I see the glory. <laughs> and in that midst of talking about life and friends and family, our conversation lifted me to see God's glory a little more clearly. I needed it. Don't you? Don't you need the encouragement of brothers and sisters to see the bigness and the power of God and his promise to work in the world. The second practical thing we see as we look at this, however, is that we can't neglect to meet together. It's very, very practical, isn't it? Don't neglect to meet together. A a precondition of encouraging someone is that you be with them. It's kind of obvious, but I think we need to remind ourselves. The author of Hebrews felt it was urgent to remind them. We are called to be a family of God. God has promised to work through us. Don't neglect to meet together. I think practically one of the reasons we need this reminder is because that on any given time that we meet with someone, it might seem that not a lot happens. We think of meeting together as we come and worship, as we gather in small groups, or as we meet with a friend one-on-one. And there's many a week where you might walk into and out of worship and someone asks you what happened, and you might say, I'm not sure anything that I could tell. Sometimes God's processes are slow and small, like water dripping on a rock. And if you wake up one day and realize you have friends, it's probably not because it happened in one moment, but because over time you did things together. And maybe each successive meeting didn't have something so incredibly obvious, but over time, your commitment to the relationship created the space where you actually could encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good works. I have a group of pastor friends I meet with once a month, been doing it for five years. And they're actually not my best friends. They're older than me in most cases. And some weeks we get together and we pray for things And I don't share anything at all. But over the course of five years, praying regularly, sharing regularly, I came to the place of realizing these guys that in many ways are different than me in different life situations, they know me pretty well. And when they say something, it means a lot because of five years of relationship. Finally, here we see this call to consider. Not only do we encourage, not only do we have to sacrifice time and be together, but we are called to consider how to stir one another up. When I read this passage, it's one of the words that most grabbed me. I think most of the time I've thought of this, maybe as many pastors do, as sort of a a lesson to point at our congregation and say, you really need to come to worship, and you do need to come to worship. 
but it's really a privilege, isn't it? And the thing that struck me most as we looked at it is this call that we are to be people who consider how to stir one another up. Let me ask you just to do a diagnostic in your life. Again, the backdrop. Jesus saved you in grace. He is a reigning king helping you. And he's promised to empower you not only to do good works, but to help others do it. How much time have you spent in the last week considering how to love others in your church, other Christians in your life, other people in your life? You probably spend a lot of time considering many things. How long do you stand in front of your closet deciding what you will wear? How long do you spend wrestling with who you will start in your fantasy football team? Or how you will make a decision about your career or your education? You might even work through speeches in your head that you might have in a certain situation to get something that you want. How often do we spend time thinking and praying about how God might use us to stir someone else up to love and good works? How often are you praying? Are we perhaps missing one of the incredible privileges God gives us to be used meaningfully in the lives of other people? that they would do more than they would do on their own because we are in relationship together. Friends, these are the things that we desire so much as a church, and we're going to follow our service today with some very practical help. All right? We have, <laughs> we have considered how to stir you up to love and good works. And as you leave today, you'll see a bunch of tables in the hallway. There'll be people at community groups there. One of the mechanisms we use as a church to provide a place where you can meet together, study the word, hold fast our confession, seek God in prayer, and know each other well enough that we would stir each other up to love and good works. Now, there might be other groups in the church, and, and maybe you've found another way to do it, but this is how, as a church, we've set a place for you to grab hold of this incredible privilege. And my prayer is that you would not let go. Practically speaking, if you're going to be involved in our church, this is too big a place to know and to stir one another up. There have to be smaller gatherings if we're going to take hold of this. So that is our prayer for you, that Jesus would be glorified, bringing grace through us. Let's close in prayer.